On July 24, 1968, 13-year-old Deborah Lee Spickler was visiting her aunt's home in Vernon, Connecticut, when she decided to meet a friend at the park swimming pool. Debbie was wearing green polka dot shorts, a white sleeve of the shirt, and white sneakers when she was last seen walking along the town's Fox Hill Drive. Almost five years later to the day, on July 26, 1973, Janice Catherine Pocket left her home in Tolland on her bike, armed with an envelope to collect a dead butterfly she'd seen on the road. Janice was last seen wearing navy blue shorts with an American flag emblem, blue sneakers, and a striped pullover shirt. It was the first time her mother allowed her to go out by herself. She was seven years old. On November 1, 1974, 13-year-old Lisa Joy White disappeared from the Rockville section of Vernon after visiting a friend. She'd snuck out after a grounding. The punishment had been imposed the night before, when the cops busted Lisa and some friends throwing a Halloween pumpkin out of a car on Route 84. Lisa's sister April spoke to the papers on Halloween 2014, the 40th anniversary of Lisa's disappearance. Lisa was no stranger to mischief and perhaps mature beyond her 13 years, April said. She had a boyfriend. I believe he was 18 at the time. My mother didn't approve, obviously. It was a nightmare, April said. She went to a friend's house and never came home. In one of Connecticut's most haunting cold cases, Debbie Spickler, Janice Pocket, and Lisa White have never been seen again. Today, the state of Connecticut offers rewards of $50,000 for each of the girls. Their cases, and their faces, are seen as inextricably linked, with one likely killer, however faceless he remains. That wasn't the case less than a decade ago, because even given the similarity between the cases, including the girls' ages, locations, and the fact that they had all vanished without a trace, all three were investigated individually with troublemaker Lisa, initially, being treated as a runaway. But in October 2014, Matthew C. Godansky, the state's attorney for Connecticut's Tallinn County, changed all that, bringing together members of the Connecticut State Police, the Vernon Police Department, and his own Office of Prosecutors, Godansky created the Tallinn County Cold Case Squad. From the outset, one of the Tallinn Squad's first orders of business was to adopt a new, united approach to bringing Debbie, Janice, and Lisa home by treating their cases as related. A year later, in 2015, Patrick Griffin was heading up another cold case unit. A supervisory assistant state's attorney to chief state's attorney Kevin Kane, Griffin's team took on cases referred to it by prosecutors all over the state. Working in cubicles in a Rocky Hill office building, the unit had gotten a shot in the arm when former Hartford detective James Ravella was appointed its chief inspector. Ravella had beefed up the unit's manpower and strategy, he told journalist Lisa Backus, by pulling in not only a dozen full-time detectives from town departments, but also parole, probation, and corrections officers, with sources in the community who might have information on unsolved crimes. Investigators had to remain vigilant to ensure that each piece of evidence was collected in the right way, and to anticipate a defense attorney's methods at trial. We could have the smoking gun, but if it wasn't collected right, if it wasn't preserved right, we'll lose it, Reggie Wardell, a former state police detective on Griffin's team, told journalist Jonathan Shugarts. But as a whole, the effort was designed to be collaborative, with each man or woman working on every case in the unit, starting from scratch and looking with fresh eyes. Emphasis was placed on having the complete story of who the victim was, not only in death, but in life, to know who he or she was as a person. Griffin encouraged every investigator 
many of whom had experience in multiple homicides, to probe for unique motives, to study the victim's timeline before his or her death, and reinterview every witness that could be found, quote, as if the case had been reported yesterday, unquote. The one sin of a cold case unit, Griffin told Shugarts, is to be narrow-minded, to have preconceived ideas. For a state that has no main cold case clearinghouse or database, and where the number of unsolved homicides is estimated to be between 1,100 and 2,000, the investigators needed to make difficult decisions when choosing which cases to work on. At the outset, the definition of what makes a case truly cold is a bit fuzzy. Although state investigators usually agree a case can be classified that way when an arrest has not been made within five years. The easy ones are solved, and they don't become cold, Inspector Michael Sullivan told Lisa Backus. But the ones that aren't, there are just so many cases. Every one of those cases deserves to be solved. You try and pick one and see if there are still leads. Maybe witnesses wouldn't cooperate at the time. Some have been investigated so thoroughly that there's nowhere else to go with it. To narrow down which cases take priority, Griffin's team looked for what they call a solvability factor, which could include new forensic testing of old evidence, a witness coming forward, or a new credible tip that rolls through the door. To try to drum up some leads, Detective Ravella developed a deck of cold case playing cards in 2010, sold to inmates in the commissaries of Connecticut's correctional institutions. Each of the 52 cards featured the name and photo of one cold case victim, as well as some brief details about the crime and a hotline number for anyone with a tip. According to one article, the approach was inspired by cards handed out to U.S. soldiers during the Iraq War, featuring the likenesses of Saddam Hussein and his men. The idea was that, while whiling away the time in a prison cell for one crime, an inmate might brag about one for which they'd never been caught, and that other inmates, recognizing a familiar story on one of the cards, might look to capitalize on the slip, maybe earn a reward or have some time shaved off their sentence. The four decks that have been released, with a fifth in the works, are available for Connecticut's inmates in commissaries across the state and are the only cards the inmates are allowed to use. While some victims have appeared more than once, for example, when a previously unknown victim is identified, the unit tries to change the cards as much as possible in each deck to gain exposure for more victims. As of March 2019, the cards have featured over 200 cases, generated 800 tips, and resulted in over a dozen convictions. Department of Correction Commissioner Scott Semple was rightfully proud of the program. The families of victims continue to suffer emotional stress when the homicide of a loved one remains unsolved, he said. These cold case playing cards have proved to be an extremely successful strategy in helping to bring justice to the victims of crime. That approach paid off in a big way in 2015, when one Connecticut inmate revealed his old prison buddy to be one of Connecticut's most prolific serial killers. The man, already in prison for the 2003 killing of Nilsa Arizmendi, also known as Coco, was a drifter who called himself the Sick Ripper. He had murdered six more women and then dumped them in what he called his garden, the weeds behind West Farms Mall in New Britain, during a spree in 2003. Their names were Melanie Ruth Camelini, Janice Roberts, Diane Cusack, Marilyn Menendez-Gonzalez, Joy Valine Martinez, and Mary Jane Menard. For years, their families and friends had been frustrated by a seeming lack of movement by the police, which some thought might have been motivated by the fact that many of the women were women of color, and that one woman was transgender. 
some of the women had wrestled with drugs or been arrested as sex workers. Joyveline Martinez's family knew something was wrong when she didn't show up for her own 24th birthday party and missed her mother's birthday a week later. But the family didn't report her missing until March 2004, almost six months later. One police sergeant from East Hartford, where the victim had lived, questioned why it had taken the family so long to report the disappearance and suggested that people with arrests for drug and sex work, like Joyveline, often vanished intentionally because they did not want to be found. To Connecticut State Victim Advocate Michelle Cruz, speaking to Sarah Morrison of Boston.com, that was a dangerous bell to ring. She warned against the assumption that women with troubled pasts disappeared voluntarily unless proven otherwise. A lot of times they'll hear she was a prostitute or had a hard drug history, Cruz said. And even though we know that historically, they're often preyed upon by murderers, they don't take it seriously. For many, Cruz's criticisms with regard to underprivileged victims will ring true. This is especially so given that anyone in Connecticut might be hard-pressed to remember the name of any of the women killed by the sick ripper, but could probably talk to you for hours about the case of Jennifer Dulos, a wealthy and beautiful mother of five. Jennifer disappeared from New Canaan in May 2019 during a custody dispute with her estranged husband, has never been seen again, and has become a national obsession. But we have to remember to be fair to homicide and missing persons investigators, whose job is one of the hardest out there. You would see how they would just beat themselves up because they're trying to solve the case, said Reggie Wardell. I guarantee anybody that works here takes it home with them. It's 24 hours. It's not just an eight-hour job. Griffin agreed. I've seen guys with 30 years' experience on the verge of tears because it's so frustrating, he said. There are days and weeks when nothing goes right and then bang. Something pops. Those good days were sometimes few and far between, Griffin noted. He told Shugarts that every member of his team, before accepting the job, had to understand that there would be more bad days than good days, more frustrating than not. But these guys, Griffin said, I think Reggie would do this for free, and half the guys out there would do it for free. Wardell agreed. We're trying to solve the most devious crime known, murder, he said. We work for God. In doing that work, Griffin encouraged all his investigators to keep a photo of their victim, to remind them of the importance of their work. It's so you remember this is someone's sister, mother, best friend, Griffin said. When you get frustrated, you just try and think about that. I'm Jessica fritz and this is Sticky Beak. This is Episode 9, In the Cards. Walk, softly children, walk, softly children, walk, softly Hey, it's Jess. I wanted to say a big thank you to those listening and passing on Sticky Beaks to friends and family. When we are all feeling uncertain and unsure in the world, it's good to know Doreen's story still matters to you, and that it feels good to stand by my side and help me do this work. A special thanks to my patrons on Patreon, who have invested in Sticky Beak because they not only want access to more info on the story, but because they believe what I do is important. That's Mimi, Jacqueline, Adela, Dana, Sandy, Caitlin, Nancy, Mora, Katrina, Kelly, Robin, Jennifer, and, of course, Nels. Many before that gave to my fundraiser, which will allow me to buy a shiny Doreen-only laptop 
as soon as I can get to Best Buy. Thank you. I'm working on the second half of this episode, in the cards, detailing both my FOIA fight and what it means to be a cold case in Connecticut. That episode will be available this coming week, but for patrons right now, even at the $5 level, I'm giving out that episode two days early. This work is not easy, especially now, so thank you for supporting this podcast in any way you can. Gas for my car and money for copies is a thing of the past, at least for now, but knowing each and every one of you is there is important, so thank you again. I also want to plug Joseph Aguirre, who on every episode works for hours to bring you this story as beautifully and cleanly as possible. He edits out my misreads, my coughs, and yes, my nervousness. Joe has a ton of podcasts at clovercrestmediagroup.com, including this one, at clovercrestmediagroup.com slash stickybeak. One of my personal favorites is Minding Her Own Business with Abby Bro and Jamie Clark, focusing on the important things in any professional woman's life. That includes personal care, embracing your body, and confidence. I also like It's Complicated with Mary and Kurt, discussing what it means to be a single professional in 2020. Joe just added Lovey Roundtree Olaf with the podcast system, where Lovey talks about what it's like to be the first black select woman in Exeter, New Hampshire, where she's quarantining right now with her husband and her two Jewish kids. So please check it out. Check them all out. Remember to join the Sticky Beak Facebook page and to also give Sarah Demio's Faded Out some love because we're all in this together and you've got some extra time, right? When Sarah Demio, Joe, and I started working on this case, we didn't know anything about the inner workings of the state cold case unit. In fact, I don't even think we knew they existed. So we started in the most obvious place, with the Wallingford Police Department. Back then, we were pretty naive, believing that with a few well-placed questions and a lot of goodwill, we could secure Doreen's file. We were quickly disabused of that notion, learning that what we were going to get was the brush-off. In October 2018, when we first made the PD aware of our existence, Sarah was told that the officer in charge of Dorian's case was Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe, but that she had to cool her heels until December because he was out of the office. When she tried again two months later, she was referred to a new officer, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, the head of the traffic department. Lieutenant DeMeo was pretty close-lipped until I started calling too, and suddenly we were too loud to ignore. I got my first call from DeMeo on January 23, 2019, the day he issued that press release claiming there was no new stone to uncover, that the police had done all they could and still held Doreen in their hearts. DeMeo was pleasant enough, but I was disappointed by his recall of the case, especially since he'd been the last Wallingford cop to look at it, back in 2011. He was shocked that we knew where Mark was and stunned that we had been speaking to him. He couldn't remember where Donna had lived and was surprised I'd been playing bingo with her just nights before. When I mentioned Stephanie, Donna's second daughter, DeMeo mistakenly thought that Stephanie was Sharon's kid, one who had been in the house the night Doreen disappeared. Sharon was a mystery to me, I told him. He knew she died of a heart attack in her mid-40s, but he didn't know how. If I was that interested, he told me, I should fly out to Ohio and do some digging. He tried to get off the phone with me, but, as is my nature, I kept him on the phone with one more question, one more question. When I was satisfied, I finally let him go. We agreed to keep in touch. As I've mentioned before, I was disappointed in the press release, 
which wasn't issued publicly but only to the members of the faded out team, and in word. Doreen's disappearance hadn't been timely reported, DeMeo wrote, because the phone hadn't been set up in the new house yet, and Donna and Mark were an acrimonious divorced couple. Again, just not true. But I remain convinced that Faded Out and the WPD could do great things together, so I kept calling and calling. I would not let the issue rest. And on February 13, 2019, DeMeo took a step that had seemed impossible in the beginning. He had Sarah and me into the station to share something with us, wanting to see what we would think about it, what we would do with it. No one else had this information, he teased, and when we heard it, we were floored. Mark had wanted, in 2003, to try to impart information relevant to Doreen's disappearance. The police and the New Haven State's Attorney's Office, headed up at that time by Michael Deerington, had been poised and ready to swoop in. But Mark wanted full immunity, and the deal fell apart. You could tell DeMeo really didn't want to tell us anymore, but I kept him in his office well beyond the hour he had promised, despite his constant cues that he wanted to be done. One more question, one more question. Who was there, I asked. Who could speak to that? Who was calling the shots? Lieutenant DeMeo wasn't sure, but he was adamant about one thing. I was not to call Michael Deerington. So of course the first thing I did was call the state's attorney's office. As far as I was concerned, I was playing within the rules of DeMeo's game, because Deerington had been retired since 2016. I wanted, I told the office, to speak to Patrick Griffin. In 2016, Griffin had left his job as right-hand man for Chief State's Attorney Kane to take over for Darrington as the head prosecutor for the District of New Haven. One of the first things Griffin did in his new post was to form his own cold case unit, requesting that all 13 of the local police chiefs falling under his jurisdiction, including Wallingford and my hometown of Meriden, assign an officer to work for the team. He also pulled in detectives and inspectors from his own office, federal firearms agents, and a captain from the State Department of Correction. The setup was simple. Any of the police departments from New Haven County that wanted a case investigated were to designate a lead investigator and prepare a PowerPoint presentation on why their case was worthy of being pursued. Griffin's cold case unit would then review the presentation and, if there were any avenues it could pursue, would add the case to its roster. In choosing his cases, Griffin was honest about the effect of time on a long, frozen mystery. To him, the time that had passed since a person had gone missing could be a blessing to investigators, because new witnesses with a change of circumstances, or a change of heart, might come forward. But Griffin was also clear-eyed about how time could erode evidence, and how witnesses could vanish and die. It took a while before I got a call back from someone from Attorney Griffin's office, but Inspector Doug Jowett finally called me back, toward the end of February. I was driving to get lunch when my phone buzzed. I recognized the number and pulled off the road to scrawl notes on our conversation on the back of an envelope. Jowett seemed taken aback by Doreen's story and was sympathetic, but told me the prosecutor didn't get involved until an arrest, when he would pick up the state's case against the accused. Inspector Jowett encouraged me to keep working with the Wallingford Police Department, but stressed that the state's position to the PD would be that they not hand over any records. It was important, Jowett told me, to get a confession based on truth and not just media accounts, and public release of the records could be deadly to the integrity of the case. That's the problem, I said. I don't think there's a case right now. I think it's been ice cold all this time. I asked about the state cold case unit or New Haven's. Couldn't they help? 
Not unless there was a solvability factor, Jowett told me. Something to change the game. To provide the missing puzzle pieces that could crack the case. Solvability factor, I wrote in caps on my envelope. That's the thing I told Jowett. I think we can all do that together. Call Wallingford, Jowett told me again. This was just a courtesy call, and he would not be calling me back. So now it was March, and Joe and I were successful in wrangling another meeting with the PD, this time with Lieutenant DeMeo, Chief William Wright, and then Sergeant James Cifarelli, the new head of Dorian's case. The meeting lasted more than two hours, and we came out with an understanding. The police would be working up Dorian's case with my help, but we were not to speak to Mark. Weeks went by, and while I was getting information from the department, it was like pulling teeth, with Cifarelli reminding me that Doreen was not his only case. Cifarelli was then promoted, and the case was passed to yet another detective, Stephen Jakes. As I've mentioned before, my relationship with the PD fell apart in a spectacular way at the end of April, when I discovered Cifarelli's brother was Mark's colleague at Teen Challenge. After that, I was persona non grata as far as the police department was concerned. I'm not proud to say that the blow from the police department put me off my game, and I took about a month to stew. But only a month, because on May 30th, 2019, I sent Chief Wright a formal request for Doreen's entire file under Connecticut's Freedom of Information Act. So let's do a quick review of the Connecticut Freedom of Information Act enacted in 1975. Simply put, the statute works to guarantee public access to public records. In addition to the Federal Freedom of Information Act, meant to hold the federal government to task, each state has its own similar law, also known as sunshine laws, because they allow the public to shine a light and hold their officials accountable. Some jurisdictions are more lenient than others. Florida is a great example. The sunshine law there, viewed as the most progressive of its kind in the country, allows the public access to the lion's share, with very few narrow exceptions. This won't come as a surprise to anyone who followed the Casey Anthony saga in Florida, starting back in 2008. Anthony, who at first didn't report her two-year-old daughter Kaylee missing, and then told an endless stream of lies about where she could be, was indicted even before Kaylee's body was found. And because Florida is so lenient about what kind of criminal records are made available, an unbelievable amount of footage about Anthony was immediately available to a public hungry for answers, including her phone calls from prison, her jailhouse visits with her parents, and even her interviews with the police. Florida's lenient Freedom of Info statute is also responsible for another modern phenomenon, that of Florida Man. Ever wonder why the criminal stories out of Florida are so insane? Here are just a couple, always readily available on the internet as soon as they occur. Florida man charged with throwing an alligator through a Wendy's drive through window. Florida man steals dozens of pigeons while wearing a trash bag and a bucket on his head. Florida man disguises himself in bull costume as he tries to burn down former lover's home with pasta sauce. If you're ever having a sleepless night or just want to while away some hours in quarantine, you can thank the Florida Freedom of Information Act for its endless supply of crazy. But Connecticut statute isn't as lenient. The statute itself provides as follows, except as otherwise provided by any federal law or state statute, all records maintained or kept on file by any public agency, whether or not such records are required by any law or by any rule or regulation, shall be public records, and every person shall have the right to 1. Inspect such records promptly during regular office or business hours, 2. Copy such records, or 3. 
receive a copy of such records. But the statute also comes loaded with multiple exemptions, which governmental agencies can cite to keep certain records out of the public's hands. In my request, I reminded the PD that they had to justify any denial of my request by citing each specific exemption and that they had four days to do so. Wallingford didn't make me wait. They denied my request the very next day, May 31st, 2019, in two simple sentences. As the case is still open, they wrote, it is not releasable or available for inspection under Connecticut General Statutes 1-201-B3. That exemption provides as follows. Nothing in the Freedom of Information Act shall be construed to require disclosure of records of law enforcement agencies, not otherwise available to the public, which records were compiled in connection with the detection or investigation of crime, if the disclosure of said records would not be in the public interest because they would result in the disclosure of a. the identity of informants not otherwise known or the identity of witnesses not otherwise known, whose safety would be endangered, it would be subject to threat or intimidation if their identity was made known, b. signed statements of witnesses, c. and this is the important one, information to be used in a prospective law enforcement action if prejudicial to such action, d. investigatory techniques not otherwise known to the general public, e. arrest records of a juvenile, f. the name and address of the victim of a sexual assault or injury or risk of injury or impairing of morals, or g. uncorroborated allegations. Wallingford's denial was pretty broad, I thought, so on June 12, 2019, I appealed the denial to the Freedom of Information Commission in a letter to its ombudsman, Thomas Hennick. That day was my 41st birthday, so I took the day off to spend in Wallingford. I started the day with a banana chocolate smoothie the size of my head at Pure Alchemy, wandering Choate's campus, and fondly remembering the 90s. I ended it writing for hours up at Gouveia Vineyards sitting at a table with 1316 in my sights. But somewhere in the middle, I dropped off my appeal at the Wallingford PD. Here's what I wrote. On behalf of Clovercrest Media Group and the Faded Out podcast, I submit herein a timely complaint regarding the refusal of the Wallingford Police Department to permit Clovercrest access to its public records concerning the case of Doreen Vincent. Doreen was 12 years old when she disappeared from her father's house at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford 31 years ago, in June 1988. Clovercrest has been investigating and reporting on Doreen's case since October 2018 and seeks the department's records as part of its investigation. On May 30, 2019, I asked the department for the opportunity to inspect or obtain copies of its files regarding Doreen case number 889112. The department responded via letter the very next day, denying the request and claiming, this case is still open. Copies of my request letter and the department's denial letter are enclosed. As set forth, the department has no legitimate basis for its arbitrary denial. In its letter denying Clovercrest's request, the department stated baldly, as this case is still open, it is not releasable for inspection under CGS 1203B3. The cited statute nowhere indicates that a case need be closed before a record request must be granted. Presumably, the department intended to rely on CGS 1021B3D, which permits, but does not require, an agency to deny a record request that would result in the disclosure of information 
to be used in a prospective law enforcement action, if prejudicial to such action. Assuming the department purports to rely on the prospective law enforcement exception, it has no good faith basis to do so. Doreen's case is ice cold. She vanished 31 years ago, and the department has never made a single arrest or publicly named a suspect in her case. Indeed, despite the fact that Doreen disappeared from the house of her father, Mark Vincent, in Wallingford, the only police department to ever take law enforcement action against Mr. Vincent for anything remotely related to Doreen's disappearance was the Bethel Police Department, which arrested him in 1989 for possession of a firearm by a felon. This is so despite Mr. Vincent's admission to police that he had taken photographs of his minor daughter in her underwear and that he had given out all his remaining photos. Indeed, even after Mr. Vincent offered to provide information about his daughter's disappearance in exchange for immunity in 2003, when he believed he was gravely ill, the offer was declined, the department still took no action against him, and the case continued to languish. The department only recently re-examined her disappearance after learning about our investigative efforts, with the last substantive activity having taken place in 2011. The only action the department has taken since Clovercrest's investigation and reporting began is to issue the enclosed press release. Even if the department could reasonably claim that it is working on a prospective law enforcement action, such a claim would not justify a blanket denial of Clovercrest's request. The law does not require that an investigation be closed before disclosure is required. Information is not exempted from disclosure by the mere good-faith assertion that the matter to which the information pertains is potentially criminal. There must be an evidentiary showing that the actual information sought is going to be used in a prospective law enforcement action and that disclosure of that information would be prejudicial to that action. Moreover, we must also emphasize the immense public interest in the extent and quality of over three decades' worth of an investigation, which has failed to produce any satisfactory answers as to what happened to Doreen or to identify the person or persons responsible for her disappearance. Our investigation has brought to light that Doreen was originally treated as a runaway despite evidence to the contrary, that her family's pleas for more police attention and offers of insight and evidence were ignored, that no real work was done on the case until more than a year after Doreen was gone, and that any work on the case in the following years was mostly administrative, ignoring key witnesses and failing to identify and pursue rational and potentially fruitful leads and theories. As such, the department's investigation has been increasingly called into question in the press, by anonymous police personnel, and now by the public. As such, there is a pressing public interest in understanding why all these years have passed without any real answers that would bring Doreen and her family the peace and justice they deserve. Because the department has utterly failed to demonstrate that the prospective law enforcement action exemption is applicable to Doreen's case, we respectfully request that you accept and consider this complaint and take prompt action to require the department to disclose its records to Clovercrest. The Freedom of Information Commission accepted the complaint and scheduled a hearing for August 15, 2019, when my family and I had already scheduled a Cape Cod vacation. I asked for an extension, but the department refused, and Joe and I brought the entire family of six back to make sure he and I could attend. Appearing for the department was Town Attorney Janice Small, Chief Wright, and Lieutenant Cifarelli, who was never called to testify and never said a word. Doreen's Aunt Debbie had also planned to be there, 
but somehow word had gotten out in the meantime that Wallingford had kicked it up to Patrick Griffin's cold case unit in New Haven. The police had asked Debbie to maintain a low profile and to trust them. When she called to give me this news, you could tell Aunt Debbie was stuck between two worlds. She'd never trusted the WPD, but she'd never trusted the media either, and now she had both on her side, fighting for her. She was apologetic to me. Screw that, I told her. You should be happy and proud that you have both of us in your corner now. If Wallingford was about to get Patrick Griffin's team involved, I told her, she was right to toe the line, and the last thing I wanted to make her do was choose sides. So here we are on August 15, 2019, in a Hartford hearing room, listening to Freedom of Information hearing officer Kathleen Ross explain how the process will proceed. This is a hearing in the matter of docket number 2019-0348, Jessica Fritz-Aguire and Clovercrest Media Group versus Chief Police Department, Town of Wallingford et al. Today is August 15th, I believe. Yes. 2019. And the time is now 2.33 p.m. For the record, my name is Kathleen Ross. I've been designated as hearing officer in this matter. Did they get it right? They did. They did. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly go over how the matter is going to proceed today. If you have any questions, feel free to jump in, ask questions. Our, our hearings are more informal than court proceedings. And so if you don't understand something or you have a question, just let me know. So based on what happens at today's hearing, I will prepare what we call a hearing officer's report, also referred to as a proposed final decision. They're the same thing. Um, all parties will get a copy of that report in the mail, along with a date and a time that the Freedom of Information Commission will consider that report. It's not required that you attend that meeting of the commission, but keep in mind, our commission is very active and it can and not infrequently does change the report. So we do encourage you to come to that meeting. One side is not gonna be happy with the report, so you ought to be here to tell the commission why you're unhappy, and on the other side, if you are happy with it, you ought to be able to explain to the commission why they should adopt the report. For today's hearing, we will follow the Uniform Administrative Procedure Act, which in essence means the complainant goes first and presents all relevant testimony an argument which is subject to cross-examination by the respondents and at the conclusion of the respondents case at the compla- conclusion of the complainants case the respondents will have the same opportunity to present argument and evidence which will be subject to cross-examination by the complainant I also may have questions which I will um, try to hold till the end but sometimes I will interrupt and ask questions I was then able to state my case and was subject to attorney Small's cross-examination Her main points were that I had gotten a lot out of my investigation and had even received some cooperation from the Wallingford Police Department. And Mark had been prosecuted for the gun charge, so what more did I want? Everything, I told her. Didn't I already have the information to back up my theory of the case, she asked me. No, I told her. I don't want to back up my theory of the case. I want to solve it. Then it was Chief Wright's turn to testify. Wallingford Attorney Small led him through questions as to what the file looked like and why they felt the exemption warranted them keeping it out of the public eye. I want to talk generally about the categories of information in the file. Um, Are there signed witness statements in the file? Yes. Um, Are there lists of witnesses and documents relating to other witnesses that you've um, done some investigation on? Yes. Are there transcripts of interviews in the file? Yes. Are there video of the interviews in the file? Yes. 
Are there audio of interviews in the file? Yes. Um, do you have um, in within the file collect um, NCIC data? Yes. And could you briefly explain what that is? Collect and NCIC are two um, similar but different uh, criminal justice databases that contain the information of all in NCIC, um, all arrest information nationwide. Collect is a very similar database which pertains to Connecticut's records only. And um, as part of um, the requirements with regard to access to that data, is, is it to be treated as confidential? Yes, and only uh, available to those persons that have um, gone through the proper uh, training and security protocols. And that would be law enforcement, correct? Law enforcement. Okay. And is it a crime to disclose that information? Yes, it is. Um, within the file, are there evidence reports? Yes, there is. Are there, is there information regarding searches that you've done? Yes. Um, is there um, investigative notes? Yes. Is there a case report? Yes. And is all this information um, necessary for the investigative work that you are and will be doing at this time? Absolutely. Okay. And why, um, why are you looking to protect this information? Um, the case is very active. And even though some of these statements may have been taken years ago, um, they become key later on as additional investigative efforts are undertaken with respect to um, facts and circumstances that are in statements change, that the information very well may remain consistent, um, and how all that means to the case moving forward um, becomes critically important um, as our efforts continue. And if the case file was a released as a public document, would um, someone be able to tell who you talked to? Yes. Who you didn't talk to? Yes. Who would it be able to um, tell you where you've been? Yes. Where you're going? Absolutely. What you've done? Yes. Um, and is there a concern about a member of the public having access to that? Absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> and would that include someone who, in fact, could be? Um, potentially responsible for the disappearance of Doreen Vincent? Yes. And you're looking to protect the, the file for that reason, is that correct? Yes. Chief Wright also gave some background on Wallingford's efforts to date on the case. Um, Chief, could you briefly um, describe what is the, the Doreen Vincent case? In June of 1988, Donna Vincent reported her daughter Doreen Vincent missing from the town of Wallingford. In 1988, at the time of the complaint, our investigators um, launched an investigation, if you will, into her disappearance, um, which took many different facets. Um, and as we sit here today, um, Doreen Vincent uh, herself uh, nor have the remains of Doreen Vincent been recovered. Chief Wright spoke a bit about how he and his team had welcomed information from Clovercrest. And you did meet with 
um, the complainant and her husband? Yes. Okay. Did you have concerns about meeting with them? No, not initially. Um, you know, we'll take information from whoever might have it. If it helps our case um, in any way, shape, or form, we will absolutely sit with whomever. Um, so initially, no, we had no concern. Okay. But Chief Wright was also upfront about another group from which the PD was seeking help. Is the investigation presently active? Yes, it is. And are you um, engaged with the Office of the State's Attorney's Cold Case Unit? Yes, we are. And how are you engaged with them at this time? The uh, case in chief, if you will, has been presented to the state's attorney's office for consideration. At the review by the prosecutor, that office has asked us to conduct additional uh, investigative efforts, which we are currently undertaking. And if the um, state's attorney's office cold case unit takes this file, um, is it fair to say that they're going to go through the entire file of the investigation that you've done today? Yes. And is it possible that they're going to tell you to redo some of the work that you've done on this case? Yes. And um, is it likely that you are going to be additional things? Yes. Okay. And how, how big is this case file? The file itself is one full legal size um, banker's box and two additional um, similarly sized uh, boxes. Then it was my turn to cross-examine Chief Wright. I asked him why, after 31 years, a prospective law enforcement action was suddenly a possibility. Would you agree um, that in this case there's an indication of the possibility of foul play with regard to Doreen? Potentially. Okay. Um, and would you agree that once foul play became an investigative possibility, a prospective law enforcement action was on the table? I, I don't understand what on the table means. Do you think you can rephrase your question? I can rephrase it. Once it became apparent that there might be a possibility that something untoward had happened to Doreen, that an arrest or a prosecution of someone or some people, plural, would be potentially on the table. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, and what's changed in the past 31 years since she disappeared that has um, made the law enforcement, the prospective law enforcement action relevant today? If you can answer that generally, I don't know if you can. So our efforts, from 1988 forward to until we sit here today have been, um, I think, appropriate. I wouldn't want to use the word consistent because we wait for things to come to us that you know we're stuck with. Um, but it is a very active case. Okay. Um, and, and let me just say this. Either Doreen herself has not appeared, or the remains of Doreen have not been located and recovered appropriately for her family. And that is our intent today mm -hmm. and since 1988. That is absolutely our intent. I also asked him what kind of review my request was given before it was denied and why the prosecutor was not there 
to tell us a prosecution was in the works. What review, if any, did the police department do before denying my request? So the um, commander of the records division, Lieutenant Saharko, does not have full knowledge of this, you know, this case, right? Um, so without speaking for him, mm -hmm. um, I'm fairly certain that he sat with the commander in the detective division, which currently has oversight of the case, um, and more than likely generally looked through the file and thereafter created his response to you. Okay. And I don't want to speak for him. Okay, who is the commander of the detective division? Lieutenant Michael Calavolpi. Okay. Um, so the two of them, in your belief, completed that review? Yes. Do you know who signed off on it? I don't know that would, would, anything would have been signed off on it. Okay. Is it your position that the entire file was reviewed before denying the request? Yes. Okay. Are you aware that I made my request on May 30th? I, I'm not aware of that. Okay. It's in the exhibit. And then it was denied on May 31st? Okay. Um, would the police department have drafted any report on the review of my request, such as a log <coughs> or any notes? Such as a law? Logs. A log. Oh, a log. Mm -hmm. um, no, the, um, your formal request would, be, would have been stored appropriately as we do with all FOI requests. Okay, so when you say that the file was reviewed generally, are you saying that every single piece of the file may or may not have been reviewed? It may or may not have been reviewed. Okay. Um, is redacting the file and or pieces of it a possibility? I would say not at this time. Okay. Um, all right, so you're objecting to the FOIA request because you believe producing the file will be prejudicial to a law enforcement action brought by the state's attorney's office. Or our agency. Or your agency, okay. Who determined there's likely to be a law enforcement action? I think generally it would be law enforcement collectively, whether that's the prosecutor or our agency. Okay, has the prosecutor been involved in those discussions? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, why has the prosecutor not been made available as a witness today? Objection. I, I, I'm not sure that the witness is that's an appropriate question okay. for the witness. Okay. Um, so I'm going to sustain the objection. While Attorney Small's objections to my question about the lack of a prosecutor were sustained by hearing Officer Ross, that didn't mean that Ross didn't have her own. I want you to listen carefully to the following audio. It's long but it's important. Okay, I have a few questions for you, Chief. If we could focus on, um, the complainant touched a little bit on the referral to the state's attorney. Um, if you could explain to me in greater detail um, what the status is with respect to the referral to the state's attorney's office. So, um, when was that contact first made? How about a year? No, inside of a year. Okay. Inside of a year. So in 2019? Yes. Okay. And if you can answer this, um, why was the referral made in 2019? Is that as, was that as a result of your continued, continued investigation? Yeah. So um, Michael Darrington, who was the longtime state's attorney for the Judicial District of New Haven, retired. His replacement, Pat Griffin, came to us from Waterbury, and it was 
Mr. Griffin's intent from the first day to solve a lot of crime by putting together a cold case squad in the New Haven region. And what year was this when Griffin came on board? I would say 17. Okay. Um, and over the next several months, um, he had meetings with chiefs because it requires, under his thought process, the dedication of manpower from each department in the, in the region, right, in the New Haven region. And as much as he would probably like to commit himself to all that labor, it requires a chief to commit the labor. So um, it took a while, I think, to get started. But now I believe, and I only speak for us, but I believe generally each department has committed resources to this cold case squad. We have a detective, Steve Jakes, um, assigned to Mr. Griffin's cold case unit or squad. It's very informal, it's um, as needed. Um, it might be a case that he just needs, as an example, extra witnesses spoken to in a timely manner where he can turn out 20 or 30 detectives to track some people down for interviews that in our situation the case may have never touched Wallingford but we've committed our resources. And so you testified that detect is it Detective Jakes? Yes. Detective Jakes is presently working on this case that's at issue here today in yes. this abduction or whatever it was, disappearing girl case. Yeah. And um, if I heard your testimony correctly, you were unable to answer how much time he devotes to this particular case? Right, so as an example, um, just on Tuesday, we had a complaint of a sexual assault against a four-year-old come in, and the four-year-old was currently at the Children's Medical Center up here in Hartford, and that takes priority. We're not um, an agency that's staffed with 50 detectives, right? So, um, and that takes priority. I'm not gonna say that he was in on that sexual assault, but that's kind of an example of almost the day-to-day -day and, and how things can go. So, Detective Jakes works for the Wallingford Police Department. Yeah. So, is it your testimony, if I understand you correctly, that Detective Jakes is your dedicated person to the cold case unit, but he would also help not help out not just on Wallingford cold cases, or in your, your test, I'm sorry, that's, uh, that's not what you testified to, the Wallingford active case of the disappearance of this little girl, but he would also help out in other police departments. Um, through the state's attorney's office. Through the state's attorney's office, okay. But what I'm trying to elicit from you, and if you don't know, then you certainly should tell me you don't know, is, um, well, I think, you're, if, first let me back up. Is he the only person in the Wallingford Police, Police Department who's actively working on this case? No. He's not, okay. No. All right, so he helps out, so Jake's, Jacks? Jakes. Jakes helps out um, to continue the investigation with respect to this disappearance in this case alongside of other law enforcement personnel in your agency yes. on this case. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, other than <clears throat> interviewing witnesses, what else is your department doing um, to 
work this case. For example, I have some questions. Um, this isn't the first case we've had here at the commission involving requests for records of quote unquote cold cases that are claimed to be active. So some of the other evidence that we've received in other cases um, include testimony that um, evidence has been resubmitted for forensic testing. Um, the FBI has been brought in to assist. There's been re-interview of witnesses. Um, one agency had hired a hypnotist to um, try to uh, elicit information from a potential witness. So aside from, you testified that there have been interviews of additional witnesses. Is there anything else that you can tell me that your department has done to continue the investigation of this disappearance? If you can say it, you can find a way to say it. Um, I can tell you that um, I can tell you that highly specialized um, forensic assistance is um, going to potentially assist us. And I can tell you that administrative level um, ex parte warrants have been applied for and served. And going back to the state's attorney, um, when you met with state's attorney Griffin, did you um, did you meet with him specifically about this case or just about the cold case, uh, creating the cold case units generally? Generally. So what communication, what involvement has the state's attorney had in this case? Um, has it looked at your files and I know you testified that they've asked you to do further investigation and was that based on a review of the information that you presented to the state's attorney's office right so because they get a fair number of these requests to work these cases what they ask every department to do is to summarize the case into a PowerPoint presentation the detective is then required to present his synopsis through the PowerPoint for consideration. We're ready to go with that, but through our conversations with Mr. Griffin's uh, assistants, right, Seth Garbarski is his name, um, he listened to our summary and said, okay, before we get to a formal presentation by Jake's, um, let's do this. And those things were presently Um, so, my concern is with the language of the statute, and I know that you're not a lawyer, um, but I'm going to read you what the statute says. The exemption applies to information to be used in a prospective law enforcement action if prejudicial. There's a number of things that need to be proven 
in order to prove that exemption. You have to prove that the information is to be used in a prospective law enforcement action, which of course implies that there's going to be a law enforcement action. And then of course you have to prove the prejudicial part of that. So has anyone in the state's attorney's office informed you that there will be a prospective law enforcement action? I would more than likely ask you to give me an example of what you're referring to specifically. Example of what I'm, um, you mean the, the stats, the number of the statute? No, um, so I, I think so I here. understand what you're saying, but I don't want to guess. So what I'm asking you is if someone from the state's attorney's office, so maybe this would be helpful. In every case that I can think of where this exemption, exemption has applied, the matter is with the state's attorney's office. Okay. And the state's attorney comes here and testifies that there, obviously there is going to be a pr prospective law enforcement action. And here's why it would be, in other words, I'm not, I'm not sure, and I'm gonna ask attorneys to brief this, I'm not sure that the exemption applies where there is no law enforcement action. In other words, um, if the case isn't with the state's attorney, I think it's the state's attorney that has to make the determination that the information is to be used in a prospective law enforcement action and that it would be prejudicial to the action. I'm not sure that you're the person that can make that determination. So what I'm asking you is are you the person or has the state's attorney made that determination? Has the state's attorney made the determination, let's start with just one of the three um, factors that has to be proven, that there will be an, a prospective law enforcement action? Yes, I, I think we're taking it now under his direction. If, okay. If that helps. So the matter, so then maybe I misunderstood your testimony. So, so when you made the presentation to the state's attorney, was it, you said that they get a lot of, the state's attorney's office gets lots of requests to take these cases. Once you made the presentation, were you told that they were gonna take that case? They wanted us to further our efforts through these other means that I spoke of very briefly. Mm -hmm. And So it's under their direction. So it was your understanding that once you took those actions, the case would be taken by the state's attorney's office? Yes, that's our hope. It's, you know, and I can't speak for the prosecutor. Right. Right, that's very true. So hearing Officer Ross ask both sides to prepare a brief on whether a police chief, rather than a prosecutor, could answer that first and most important question. Is there a prospective law enforcement action? My answer was a resounding no. But rather than focus on that point, I focused on what was at hand, the fact that the police department had failed to satisfy the exemption. Whether the police chief was the proper witness or whether it was the prosecutor, as hearing officer Ross had implied it was, didn't matter. The WPD had had its chance, and it had failed to fulfill its burden. The subject of the case sought by complainants, 12-year-old Doreen Jane Vincent, has been missing for over 31 years, I wrote. The agency which claims to have been actively investigating her disappearance for all this time, but which has failed to make any arrest or convince a prosecutor to commence any action, should not be permitted now to profit from its own incompetence. It has failed or refused to solve the case, 
and has now failed to establish its entitlement to an exemption from its statutory duty to disclose its files. It would be the ultimate injustice to Doreen for the police department, which has failed her for over three decades, to get a second bite at the apple in its attempt to withhold production of her files. Sticky Beaks, there is so much more to this story. It's been almost seven months since I wrote this brief for Hearing Officer Ross, and things have been developing on a day-to-day basis. Most importantly, since September, and I think in response to my constant pressure on the WPD, Doreen's case has finally been declared a homicide. But since then, the world has also changed forever, and I'm penned up in my house. I've continued working on top of my efforts to juggle motherhood and professional life, and while episodes might take a little longer, I'm never giving up on this case. In my next episode, I'll talk to you more about my FOIA fight and its relation to the state's cold case units. Thank you for sticking with me, as always, and for your passion and support while I fight for justice for Dory. I'm still here, and I'm glad you are too. Stay well, and see you soon. Walk, softly children, walk. Cheers.